We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. The ratification process turns to South Carolina. It is clear that the Federalists who run the state favor ratification, but it won't be as simple as that. First, the state legislature will do something that no other legislature has done. It will openly debate the Constitution for the sake of informing the country's members of the reasons why the Constitution should be ratified. Then, Mr. Rawlings loans rises in opposition to ratification. He outlines the problems that many in South Carolina have with the overall tone of the Constitution, which is, of course, the one thing that all of the southern states, South Carolina most of all, fears the Constitution will do, end slavery. When South Carolina votes to ratify, it is over the objections and the will of the people of the state, but it is the eighth pillar to be raised in the new government. In January of 1788, the South Carolina legislature took it upon themselves to do something that none of the other legislatures had heretofore done. They themselves, even though they knew that the ratification of the convention would be taken up by a special convention in the state, decided to go ahead and debate the Constitution themselves in the legislature. Now, this was very unusual. It wasn't done um, at all up to this point uh, by any of the other states. There was this recognition that the legislature uh, should not do this, uh, but South Carolina felt that this was important, and their reasons for doing so was to, quote, inform to provide for information to the rest of the country, unquote. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase because it's a phrase that we don't use in the same way today that they used. When we say, when we today speak of the country, we're speaking of the rest of the nation other than ourselves. But in the 1780s, there were two distinct parts to virtually every state in the Union. There was the mercantile, generally seaboard, uh, urban areas, and then there was the country, which was the rest of the state, which did not have the economic uh, powerhouse, the economic uh, pull that the, that the seaboard areas did. And that's what, of course, South Carolina is talking about here. And this is significant, though, in South Carolina, because for the first time, uh, we are going to see a state in which the majority of the state 
if you were to take a poll, is clearly, clearly in opposition to the ratification of the Constitution. But the mercantile classes, the, the eastern seaboard classes, Charleston, that area, are clearly for it. But the rest of the state is against it. In fact, a, uh, a reasonable facsimile of a poll that was uh, put together some years later showed that some 52.2% of the people of South Carolina, uh, the free people of South Carolina at the time, were dead set against ratification of the Constitution. Now, obviously, you know how the story ends. South Carolina is going to ratify, and they're going to do so fairly perfunctory without much of, a, of an opposition. But it isn't going to be as easy as it seems, especially after this little debate put on by the Federalists in the state legislature. When you talk about the discussion and the ratification process in South Carolina, you're really looking at three primary however you want to talk about it, three primary areas of debate. There was, of course, and, and, and this is in no particular order, this is just the order that they happened to interest me, I suppose, more than anything else. Uh, the, the state of South Carolina was unique in a lot of ways, and yet in a lot of ways it wasn't all that different from the rest of the nation. But it saw itself differently. I think, than, than, and continued to all the way up to, to 1865, I think South Carolina continued to see itself uh, somewhat differently than the rest of the nation. Their convention would not begin until May. It, uh, it showed up on May 12th, and it only lasted a couple of weeks till May 23rd. Uh, there's not a lot of the debate left. Uh, we've got some of Eliot's debates. We've got some declarations and resolves that come out of South Carolina. But we do know from the course of the debate that there were, th and, and some of the things that they recommended, that there was a good deal of discussion about some of the things in the Constitution that the people of South Carolina were deeply concerned about. We talked in the past about Massachusetts and the fact that they were concerned that there was no religious tests permitted. The people of South Carolina, the, the Convention of South Carolina, had the same concern, although in a different way. And this is where it gets a little strange, I think. Like many states, South Carolina has, has, yes, I said has, to this day has, an official religion. I don't know if you knew that or not. They did, in fact, have an official Protestant denomination religion in South Carolina. And they were concerned enough with the No Religious Tests article that they recommended that in the that they reword that article of the constitution to say no religious tests to quote no other religious tests they still wanted to have their religious tests because they believe very firmly that in order to hold office in south carolina you had to have one of two conditions uh, really one of three although they kind of wink wink nudge nudged on the third one which was that you had to be a member of the official state religion but as long as you were willing to acknowledge the existence of god and that there was going to be a future judgment and reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked, they were pretty much okay with you. They, didn't, they would have preferred that you belong to the religious church of preference in South Carolina, which I realize I haven't told you yet, uh, but, but, if, but as long as you belong to a faith that acknowledged the existence of God and of heaven and hell, they were they would be okay with you and they wanted to make sure that this 
continued in the national government. They, they realized that they weren't going to be able to push for the church that they belonged to, that they upheld. Uh, certainly, given the circumstances, uh, they were going to have a problem with that. And in fact, by 1790, while the state of South Carolina still, to this day, has a religious test in its constitution, its state constitution, uh, they, they did away with the official church of South Carolina. They had to, uh, because the official South Car- church of South Carolina in 1788 was uh, the Church of England, which, given the circumstances here, you can kind of see is um, certainly nicolterny, as the, as the Russians would say, uncultured. It's, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. Um, you're Americans, you're debating a new government, you've, you've rebelled against the king, but your official church is the Church of England? Wait a sec. Uh, but there were some reasons why the Church of England was uh, so prevalent in South Carolina. We don't have time to get into all that. Uh, but they wanted that inserted into the Constitution. No other religious tests, other than the ones that South Carolina particularly approved of. As you can guess, that didn't happen. It didn't get pushed into there. Even though one of the conditions that the convention in South Carolina will set on its delegates to Congress is that uh, any delegate from South Carolina to Congress has to try to push for these things that we've, we want added in here. They didn't really, and off they went, and we never did get that change, and <laughs> I think that that's good. I, I, we, you know, the fact that we didn't get that added in there is probably for the best, right? Although the Church of England, had it managed to maintain that toehold, who knows what would have happened uh, downstream. But in 1790, of course, South Carolina did do away with the official church of the state, uh, but they did not do away with the official religion of the state. And they still, to this day, actually have in their state constitution, along with, there's actually multiple states that do this. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, nope, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight states, I guess, that still have that in their constitution, uh, although it's utterly ignored, obviously, because the constitution has said, no, you, you, you can't do that. And it's just another case where, as so many of the people who voted on ratification were afraid of, that the supreme law of the land would subsume, ultimately, the state's rights, as it were. Uh, I hate that phrase, but states' rights, um, meaning, of course, that states had sovereignty, which is actually going to come into play, interestingly enough, here in South Carolina. The the primary problem, though, that South Carolina faced with ratification was a deep belief that the United Government, the government of the United States, the, the proposed Constitution would, as so many at the convention had said, do away with slavery. This was a deep concern to South Carolina. South Carolina had an economy that was based almost entirely upon slave labor. No one there had the prescience to see uh, into the future and, you know, mechanization and, and the likes of that. No one, no one was thinking that far forward. What they were reading was, okay, in 1808, Congress can stop the importation of slaves, and within a few years after that, they could, if they so chose to, do away with slavery. And this is just one more example, of course, of the dominance, as, as they felt, 
that the North was trying to push over on the South and consequently destroy South Carolina. There, was, there were those who felt like this was personally aimed at South Carolina, forgetting the fact that South Carolina uh, had been integral in the Three-Fifths Compromise and standing, with, of course, with Pennsylvania and, and, and Georgia and others against uh, the elimination of slavery, that, that South Carolina had fought hard for slavery during the convention and had compromised and held on to it. There were those who really believed that the entire purpose of the Constitution was to essentially set up a northern confederacy, as it were, to rule over the South economically. There, there was a belief that the, uh, the North would charge uh, incredible freight rates to come pick up the, the southern cotton and, and southern manufacturing, what, what there was, and, and take it uh, wherever, that the North would try to, would, would monopolize that and would essentially uh, gouge the South with, with transportation costs. There was a belief that the abolitionists in the North would, would try to destroy South Carolina by eliminating slavery. And, and South Carolinians believed in 1788, believed wholeheartedly that if there were no slaves, South Carolina would be destitute. South Carolina would be literally a swamp and nothing else. Uh, there, there were those who actually believed that. And, and I go back to that poll again that we talked about, Pauline Myers cites that poll, 52 plus percent of South Carolinians believed that the Constitution would be bad for South Carolina. It was only a few, roughly 40 percent of people in the state that believed uh, that, that it would be good. And of course, almost all of those were the wealthy mercantilists of Charleston and the Eastern Seaboard. The difficulties were headed up by a lawyer by the name of Rollins Lowndes. Uh, Rollins Lowndes was a, uh, he was a, he was a South Carolinian. He was a lawyer, obviously. I told you that. He's a politician. He was actually the president of South Carolina. And later on, his sons would serve in Congress, uh, but he was not native born. He was born in St. Kitts in the, in the British West Indies. Uh, he came to South Carolina in, in his early years. Um, he found himself in the position to be not quite loyalist, but not quite rebel either. He was against Parliament. He didn't like some of the things Parliament was doing in the 1760s and 1770s, but he opposed armed rebellion and independence. He, he didn't want that. Now here he finds himself in the post-revolutionary war uh, era as a I, it's hard to describe him as an anti-federalist in the sense that he was part of an organized movement because he wasn't. He, he was not uh, a member, uh, and I use that term loosely, member of the anti-federalist, although he himself would have described himself as anti-federalist as a position. He didn't glom onto uh, a movement. He didn't leave us any writings about it. He didn't do anything like that. He did, however, go to the convention in South Carolina where he rose to speak in opposition to the, con uh, the Constitution. And he did so in such an interesting way. He, he stood and said that he himself was taking upon himself the mantle. He didn't use those words, but he said, I rise to speak for those who are less accustomed to public speaking. Now, we've heard that. You know, that's almost a joke phrase now. Uh, but, but he rose and said that wo those words in the South Carolina Convention and began to speak about his objections to the Constitution. He was very specific in his uh, arguments. He was, not, um, he was not happy with this. And he purported to speak 
for the majority of South Carolinians, which, as it turns out, he was. And he debated and brought up these points in the South Carolina Convention. As I mentioned earlier, he was specifically concerned about the Northern Confederacy, as it were, that, that, that it was the future of the South in general. He took upon it that it wasn't just South Carolina. He, he was worried about the whole South in a nation that would be dominated by Northern majority. Uh, he argued that the North had carefully protected its commercial interests, but providing for the end of the slave trade after 20 years violated those of the South. Without Negroes, he said, this state would degenerate into one of the most contemptible in the Union. He saw no reciprocal bargain in the Constitution, no give and take. Uh, it was all take from one party and bestow it on the other. And he was very upset about um, the transferring of taxing powers from the states to the Congress, and he was most concerned about the prohibition on state-issued paper money in Article 1, Section 10. Quote, what evils had we ever experienced by issuing a little paper money to relieve ourselves from any exigency that pressed upon us? Unquote. Now, I don't want to get too much into the whole paper money issue at this point. Uh, when we get to Rhode Island, we're going to spend a good deal of time on this argument about uh, state-issued paper money. Uh, but in essence, what you need to understand was that uh, there, there's basically two kinds of money, specie money and, and fiat money. Uh, we're most familiar with fiat money, which is, this is a very, this is a very begin basic level economics, okay, folks? Uh, don't send me your emails with all the descriptions and uh, this is very basic you have hard currency and then you have paper money uh, the advantages of paper money is that it's a little more flexible as opposed to hard currency um, and it can be used in ways that uh, sort of manipulate the economy in a very I, I don't want to call it kin Keynesian type of manner but there are advantages to your economy to having paper uh, fiat money but there are also disadvantages, but there are advantages and disadvantages to specie as well. South Carolina had long used paper money to, again, relieve themselves of exigencies as needed. And they didn't really see the problem with it. They didn't really see uh, that th they refused to accept that if we have a national government, we can't do that anymore. And he was very upset about this. The arguments that he made were... Um, compelling to South Carolinians. To you today, they might not make a lot of sense. To you today, the idea of arguing for slavery and against uh, the northern uh, mercantile interests might seem a little odd. But even in 1788, they came across as a little bit stale. Uh, many people were pointing out the fact that, you know, you, you argue about this importation of slaves thing, but the fact of the matter is that as of 1788, only two states in the entire Union allow importation of slaves. One is Georgia, and guess who the other one is? <laughs> That's right, South Carolina. They're the only two that do it. Georgia, a very small state population-wise, obviously it's very big landmass-wise, but it's very small population-wise. So functionally, South Carolina is really the only state that's going to be bothered by this. And at this point, other states have shown that they don't need the importation of slaves. Why are you arguing for it? Furthermore, when you start talking about the, uh, the Southern Confederacy, the Southern uh, block of states, if you were, uh, against the Northern Confederacy, there's this concern that the North is going to outstrip the South. But there's a problem that, that Rollins, that Rollin Lowndes has, has, is reminded of uh, very cogently, and that is that within 
uh, within just a few years, there are going to be at least two more southern states. Yes, there's going to be Vermont up north, but in the south, Kentucky and Tennessee are growing like wildflowers. And the people moving to those states are moving from all over the country. They're not states yet. Right now, they're just kind of territories. They're loosely organized, but it's clear that they're going to become states and they're going to be southern states. And so it's pointed out to, to Mr. Lowndes that, hey, within a couple of years, we're going to outnumber them anyway. So your argument that somehow or another they're overwhelming us really doesn't hold water, really doesn't, really doesn't work. The, the flow into Kentucky and Tennessee is going to continue, and, and even into Georgia, and eventually to uh, Alabama, Mississippi, and those areas, is, is so overwhelming that we don't have to worry about that, Lowndes. We, sit down. We're going to outnumber them soon. If you'll just be quiet and let us do it, instead of worrying about it. He reminded, he was reminded, of course, uh, one of the more interesting arguments was, and it's, I think it's specifically aimed at Mr. Lowndes because of his sympathies during the revolution. He's reminded very poignantly by one of the members that it was Northern troops that came to the South during the American Revolution and essentially saved the South. The shackles of the South, he was told, were broken apart by the arms of the North. Now there's some obvious uh, foreshadowing in that statement, but at the same time, it's a, it's a very pointed argument aimed at Mr. Lowndes, who was a, a known uh, loyalist, a known sympathetic to the British Parliament uh, and the King, that a reminder that, hey, you keep criticizing these Northern people, but you know what? When we needed them, they were here for us, doggone it. So you need to stop picking on them like that. You need to stop accusing them of being something that they're not. As far as the paper money went, uh, paper money was pointed out to be uh, Pickney, Charles Pickney, Coatsworth Pickney, uh, pointed out that paper money also corrupts the morals of the people, turn them from the path of, of honest industry into the ways of massive, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> ruinous speculation. I got to get new glasses. Uh, it destroyed both public and private credit and brought total ruin on numberless, numberless widows and orphans. That's quite a charge about money, species money, but of course it was more likely he was talking about himself than any, any numbers of, of uh, you know, widows and children. And it was true that the, the wealthy beneficiaries of South Carolina's debt or relief laws uh, were willing to give up those benefits for the greater advantages they expected the federal constitution to provide with its limitation on paper money, state-issued paper money. All of these arguments, of course, carried a lot of weight. And in the convention, there was very little doubt as to how this convention was going to go. And because of the way the rules had been set up in South Carolina, the convention's vote was final. There was no appeal of it. There was no review of it. There was no popular uh, redo. There was none of that. Once the convention had voted to accept the Constitution and to ratify it, it was done. It was ratified. So despite the fact that literally more than half the people of South Carolina were against it, if the convention went for it, it was a done deal. And many of the anti-federalists in South Carolina saw how the convention had been stacked, saw the debates and, and the failure of Mr. Lowndes' arguments as literally writing on the wall, that it was a done deal, that the mercantile classes of South Carolina had won, and that consequently, 
the Constitution would be ratified. So many of them didn't even bother to go in the first place, but those that did bother to go basically left. Uh, a few stayed around, but not, not enough to make any kind of impact in the final vote, which would be uh, 149 to 73 for ratification. The, uh, there was a foregone conclusion that it was a done deal that they were going to uh, force this thing through one way or the other. The last little issue in South Carolina, of course, though, was the sentiment against the Constitution, the sentiment against a formal centralized government. And it revolved around the idea of the sovereignty of the state of South Carolina. The idea that the 13 independent states, the 13 sovereign states of America, were each, in essence, little countries of themselves that had decided to bind themselves together in a republic and function in that manner. And that consequently, if South Carolina didn't like this idea of the new government, they could go their own way. This, this idea is actually pretty widespread but it's concentrated mainly in Virginia. It's Virginia that actually talks about, eh, we're just gonna go on our own way. And of course, this is in all the papers and it's all over the country and the people in South Carolina are reading this. And the people of South Carolina, who you know, have a long history of thinking their own way, think to themselves, you know what? We could go this way ourselves. We could do this ourselves. We don't need these other uh, 12, 11, states. We don't need them. We in Virginia, even though North Carolina's in between us, and North Carolina's next one of the upcoming stories is, is going to be problematic too. There's every possibility that you could have a United States that goes from Maine, which is still Massachusetts, down to Virginia, skips over Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, and then adds Georgia. And, and basically has this chunk in the middle that's, its, that's three separate independent countries. This is the belief, but it's Charles Coatsworth Pickney, the Revolutionary War general, the Constitutional Conventionalist, the longtime South Carolinian, who brings up an idea that I think applies to us today, especially as we sit around here and talk about Brexit and Texas and California breaking up and, and states leaving the Union and all of these kinds of things. And it's just a reminder, and I say this all the time. Anybody that says to you today that, quote, we've never been more divided, unquote, knows nothing of how we got to be the constitutional republic that we are. We were far more divided in 1788 than we are today, far more. The difference was we didn't play the man, not the ball. In that 1788, we played the ball, not the man. This is what I keep saying. And it's Charles Coatworth Pickney who stands up and says that the assertion that the Declaration of Independence had made each state separately and individually independent as a, is a species of political heresy, he calls it. The Declaration of Independence, listen to this, because this is something that I knew, but I never really put two and two together. The Declaration of Independence never mentions the states by name. And Pickney argued that that was to impress on America the maxim that our freedoms and independence arose from our union and that without it, we could neither be free nor independent. The idea that the Declaration of Independence made us sovereign independent states is heresy, according to one of the people that was actually there. That we were always meant to be united, that we were always meant to be one nation. 
And the idea that any one of us could separate and go our own ways is not just ridiculous, it flies in the face of the very reason why we exist today. And we may not like what's going on, maybe we disagree, maybe we don't like everything that's happening, but we are united and you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, you're stuck with them. And so you're going to have to find a way to make it work. Later on, long after he's off the screen, Mr. Lowndes' children, Thomas and Williams, will both serve in the United States Congress. They will find their way to serve the United States. And so many more from South Carolina will as well. And even though we know the future holds rebellion, we also know that it holds union and that without all of us together, there is no freedom and there is no liberty. And that really is what the Constitution is designed to provide and protect. Is it perfect? No, everybody acknowledges it's not perfect, but it's the best way to do what we need to do, which is to remain united. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.